1: This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post.
2: Hello and welcome to a special Inside China podcast, this one special for a number of reasons, coming to you from the studios of the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. My name is Jared Watt and with me is my co-producer and co-presenter Jasmine Zay, fresh from her victory in the news category of the Golden Cranes Podcast Awards held in New York. Jasmine, good morning.
3: Good morning, Jared, and thank you. And we should probably explain to our listeners why I sound a bit different on the mic.
2: That's correct. You're currently confined to home because you live on the other side of the harbour and overnight Hong Kong had its heaviest rainfall since records began in the late 1800s. There were roads cut, there were landslides, there is a lot going on in Hong Kong at the moment. But today we're talking about a subject that's near and dear to my heart and has made the headlines overnight as well and it's all about Australia and China. And ever since I started work here in Hong Kong, almost a decade ago, I've been studying this relationship and just watching how it's changing and it's been changing over the last couple of years.
3: That's right. Our colleague Candy Wong from the Political Economy Desk reported yesterday on the announcement that the Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, is going to visit Beijing and meet with China's President Xi Jinping later this year. We've been waiting and watching for this announcement for some time.
2: That's right, Jasmine. It's not a sudden announcement. There's been a lot of behind the scenes scheduling, rescheduling, trying to figure out how to get the two to meet over the past few months. And there's a bit of history going on behind this because it's actually... 50 years since the first visit to Beijing, or as it was known then, Peking, by an Australian Prime Minister. That was Gough Whitlam back in 1973 in October.
3: And of course, there's also the more recent history. We've been reporting on two major issues for China and Australia over the past three years. The first has been the escalation of bans, tariffs and other barriers on Australian exports to China. And the other more recent one is the slow defrosting of diplomatic ties between Canberra and Beijing over the past 12 months after the Australian people voted in a new government. First, there was the sideline meetings at the ASEAN between the foreign ministers Wang Yi and Penny Wong. Then Xi Jinping met Anthony Albanese on the sidelines of the G20 in November last year. There was a visit from the Australian Trade Minister to Beijing in May this year. And now, this week, there's the resumption of something called the Australia-China High-Level Dialogue. And I'm not exactly sure what that is.
2: It's not exactly a headline-grabbing group, but it's quite interesting. It's actually a group of academics business leaders and former government ministers from both sides of Australian politics, meeting their counterparts in Beijing. And it's something that's been held every year from 2014 up until 2020. Now, this is the spokesman for the Australian group, Craig Emerson. He was actually Australia's Minister for Trade back when Julia Gillard was Prime Minister in 2012 he was the architect of a government white paper titled Australia in the Asian Century. I welcome uh, the recent positive
1: developments uh, in the bilateral relationship, but we know that there is more work to do. The timely and full resumption of normal trade is in the interests of both our countries. And we continue to advocate for positive progress on the cases of Australians detained in
2: China.
3: He's referring to the Chinese-Australian journalist Chung Lei, isn't he? She's been detained since 2020.
2: That's right, as well as another Chinese-Australian, and author called Yang Hongjun, who was jailed two years ago on undisclosed national security charges. Now, it's interesting that on one hand, Australia is negotiating with its biggest trading partner for the release of its two citizens, while on the other hand, it's negotiating with its biggest defence partner, that's the USA, for another one of its citizens, Julian Assange to be returned to Australia instead of facing trial in the US. And we're already seeing the Australian media framing this Albanese visit in classic, stereotyped, almost cliché kind of narrative.
3: You mean big China, bad China, and weird China?
2: That's right, except when it comes to political leaders and diplomacy, it's more like tough on China, soft on China, kowtow to China. So I thought in this podcast, we might peel open this thing we call the media narrative. And by that, I mean how fragments of a story are patched together and get passed from one news report to another to form what is accepted as the truth. I want us to start with the core fact repeated in this narrative about how relations with China and Australia went from warm to icy. Because Australia has changed in many ways to get missed by overseas observers, be they in Beijing, Washington... Vancouver, or even in Sydney, where a lot of Australia's media is centralised. And Jasmine, I can bombard you with trivia about the history and relationship of Australia and China all day, but let me run you through some basic facts that get ignored by some of these commentators. So let me start with number one. According to the 2022 Australian census, Mandarin Chinese is the number one non-English language spoken in Australian homes, and Cantonese is the third biggest.
3: Wow, I did not know that.
2: And the second is that the story of Australian trade with China in the past couple of years has really only focused on the trade barriers put up to certain Australian exports. But not much attention is paid to how much business is still being done. China has for the past two decades purchased huge amounts of iron ore from Australia. And even in the past four years, Australia has dug up, sold, and shipped nearly three billion tons of iron ore to mainland China. Now, iron ore gets turned into pig iron, which is the main ingredient in steel, and China uses that to build everything from bridges to railways to buildings to, presumably, more ships for the world's largest navy. And it's not just Australia's mining oligarchs making millions selling iron ore, coal, and liquid natural gas to China. Last year, there were nearly 3,000 Australian consumer brands engaged in online selling on Alibaba's November 11 Singles Day Bonanza. Everything from vitamins to baby powder to skincare.
3: And of course, this is where I mentioned that Alibaba is the owner of the South China Morning Post.
2: Indeed. And here's another special bit of bonus trivia. A very young Jack Ma met an Australian electrical engineer called Jack Morley from Newcastle when he was visiting China back in 1980. Five years later, Morley paid for Jack Ma's very first overseas trip to Australia, which Jack Ma said changed his life. But there's one more fragment of fact that hasn't made it into the media narrative about the China-Australia relationship, and that's a speech made last year, back when Scott Morrison was still Prime Minister, and his Defence Minister Peter Dutton used Anzac Day, which is the Australian national holiday to remember those who lost their lives in war, to say this. The only way uh, that you can, you can preserve peace is, is to prepare for war and to be strong as a country, not to cow and not to uh, you know, be on bended knee. He then went on to compare China's ambitions to Nazi Germany in the 1930s. And this points to something that Professor Waning Sun from the University of Technology in Sydney has been studying very closely. Now, we're going to hear what she has to say about how the Australia-China relationship is framed by a very small group of senior journalists and commentators in Australia. How Chinese Australians only ever get portrayed as either potential spies or victims. And she's picked up on a really interesting fact from last year, and that's showing how the constant campaigning for war with China contributed to a change of government in Australia last year. So let's start with the core element of the China-Australia frosty diplomatic relations narrative. This is a sentence that you'll hear echoed in many reports surrounding this current visit to Beijing and the impending visit of Albanese to Beijing.
0: Relations between China and Australia hit their lowest point in decades after Canberra banned Huawei technologies from its 5G network and later called for an international inquiry into the origin of the
3: coronavirus.
2: Now, it was actually August in the year 2018 when Australia became the first country in the world to ban 5G equipment made by both Huawei and ZTE in Australia on national security grounds. And if you remember, that was right at the time when Donald Trump was escalating his multi-billion dollar tariff war on exports from China, one tweet at a time. Now, incidentally, Malcolm Tramble was the last Australian Prime Minister to visit China and meet with Xi Jinping. And we're going to hear from our colleague Candy Wong in just a few minutes to talk a little bit more about this impending visit by Anthony Albanese to Beijing. But Jasmine, can I ask, can we just step back and verify the official record? What exactly was said by the man who replaced Malcolm Tremble, talking about Scott Morrison, when he was Prime Minister in early 2020 about investigating the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic?
3: You know, I found a couple of things from that period in time. This was Scott Morrison on Tuesday, April 21st in 2020, responding to a question about anti-Chinese racism at the pandemic.
4: Stop it. That's my message. It's... And I think that's the message of every Australian. Um, Now is a time to support each other, and I remind everyone that it was Chinese Australians in particular that provided one of the greatest defences we had in those early weeks. They were the ones who first went into self-isolation, they were the ones who were returning from family visits up into China and they were coming home. And it was through their care, it was through their commitment, their patience that actually Australia was protected in that first wave.
3: And one day later, Scott Morrison held a press conference and answered this question.
4: Prime Minister, can you just detail what sort of inquiry you'd like to see into the genesis of this pandemic and the sort of lessons the world can learn? And what's your message to China about its responsibility to comply with such an inquiry? Well, my message on the latter is the same for, for all nations. And what I'm simply seeking and advocating for is two things. Um, and the Foreign Minister set this out uh, in her uh, opinion piece this week. We will need an independent inquiry that uh, looks at what has occurred here so we can learn the lessons. Now, there will be debates about the timing of that. Um, we are in the middle of dealing with the pandemic right now. And I understand some of the hesitations that, are, that have been expressed about the timing of that particular inquiry. But I, Australia would have cooperate with such an inquiry. Um, any member of the World Health Organisation, I think um, that should be something that should be understood and that's part, I think, of uh, your responsibility, or should be anyway, in participating in such an organisation.
2: Now, I'll just clarify with a bit of context the words from Scott Morrison there. When he says Australia would agree to inspections and if you're a member of a club, you accept the terms, before Scott Morrison was Prime Minister, he was the Immigration Minister... In that time, the United Nations made a report finding his government had breached the UN conventions on torture for its policies on asylum seekers, to which his government told the UN to stop lecturing Australia. And then in 2021, the UN asked the Australian government, led by Morrison as Prime Minister, to raise the age of criminal responsibility, which his government also bluntly rejected. Now, another thing, Morrison has since been exposed as secretly appointing himself minister for five different ministries during the pandemic. And he's rejected any notion he did the wrong thing as part of that very exclusive club known as the democratically elected Australian Parliament. But I digress. This next bit is where the entire narrative really kicks off.
4: The other thing that can happen, and you can do two things at once, and that is to look at things that can be done Uh, to improve the safety of the world uh, more more readily. Now, people are aware of of my view about um, having the sort of authorities that would enable independent public health inspectors to uh, be able to go into areas where a virus of potential pandemic uh, implications can be understood quickly because that information undoubtedly can save lives. Now, you'll know that with weapons inspectors that people access that because those who sign up to the weapons inspectors arrangements uh, sign up to that if they're in that situation, then those inspectors would come in. Now, I'd expect the same arrangements in terms of what I'm suggesting about how that could be done. Uh, they don't have a, a roving commission to go anywhere they want in the world. If you're going to be a member of a club uh, like the World Health Organization, there should be obligations and responsibilities attached to that.
3: Scott Morrison backed this up with a tweet in which he said he had raised this issue with Donald Trump, as well as other world leaders like Angela Merkel. And so it began. Two years of an unofficial trade war guided by the narrative that Australia had led the world in calling for the WHO to be given the same kinds of powers as UN weapons inspectors.
2: Jasmine, let me just dive in here and just give some context to what baggage the term weapons inspectors has here. I'm nearly 30 years older than you, so I get the dubious privilege of remembering when the United Nations sent weapons inspectors into Iraq in 2003 to search for weapons of mass destruction that the US government said were being stockpiled. Now, the UN inspectors said there was no evidence of weapons. They were never found. But the US and UK governments rejected those findings, then used what has since been exposed as falsified evidence to the UN to start the Coalition of the Willing and invade Iraq. And it's this kind of Twitter-based, tone-deaf approach to international diplomacy that really reinforced Scott Morrison's nickname in Australia as Scotty from marketing, along with his astonishing record of corruption and malfeasance that resulted in his party being well and truly voted out of government in the national election last year. let's have a look at China's unofficial trade war on Australia and how it unfolded. So let me switch up the music here and move us through the timeline of the China-Australia trade relationship after Morrison made those comments in April 2020.
3: In May 2020, China began to ban imports from Australian meat processing plants, saying the beef was being incorrectly labelled. Then China imposed a tariff on Australian barley exports. Then in August 2020... China suspended all barley imports from Australia's largest grain exporter, CBH Group, after Chinese customs said it detected pests in the cargoes. CBH Group said there was no evidence to support those claims. Then in October 2020, China verbally banned Australian thermal and coking coal imports.
2: Verbally banned? What's what's a verbal ban?
3: It's basically an informal trade ban. Chinese officials Gave verbal instructions to buyers to not buy Australian coal. A verbal ban was also imposed on Australian cotton a few days later.
2: Right, and, and previous to this, Australia was the second largest supplier of thermal coal to China. Thermal coal is the stuff you use in furnaces to make steel. In April of 2020, there was more than 4 million tons of thermal coal being sent to China. But I'm interrupting. What other Australian exports were next on the banned list?
3: At the end of October 2020, China also banned imports of log timber from Queensland, grain imports from emerald grain, and it delayed imports of Australian rock lobsters. A China Foreign Ministry spokesman said authorities had found biohazards in timber imports and contamination in barley
2: shipments. And what exactly was wrong with the lobsters? Why were they being delayed?
3: Well, mainland Chinese authorities said they were delayed because they were being inspected. One claim was that heavy metals had been detected in one shipment.
2: Now, this is a particularly curious story because it's now 2023, and the quote-unquote delays to inspection continue almost three years later. This was a real example of how Australian exporters were caught out by making China their primary market. You know, 90% of the entire catch of rock lobsters from Australia From the fleets off the coast of Western Australia to the fleets in the Southern Ocean and the fleets off the coast of Tasmania were essentially halted. But there's a sideline story to this that really serves to highlight the relationship between Australia and the irrepressible spirit of commerce in Hong Kong. Because somewhere around the middle of 2021, someone noticed that the average amount of Australian lobsters being exported to Hong Kong had increased substantially.
3: What do you mean by substantially? How much lobster are we talking about exactly?
2: Put it this way previously, Hong Kong was importing 5,000 kilograms per month from Australia. That's a lot. But in the middle of the pandemic, with unannounced lockdowns of different districts across Hong Kong, restaurants forced to introduce a two person limit at tables, Hong Kong was importing 10 tonnes of Australian lobster per month. That's a 2,000% increase.
3: Wow, that's a lot of lobster thermidor.
2: That is a lot of lobster thermidor. And what was revealed was a large number of new export import companies had opened up here in Hong Kong, servicing something politely called the grey market, which is where you load a bunch of products on a high-powered speedboat in Hong Kong and take it to the mainland China as fast as possible before the customs police can catch you.
3: So this brings us up to November 2020, when we were when we reported that China's state-owned enterprises and private companies have been informally instructed to stop buying a variety of Australian products. That's barley, sugar, timber logs, coal, lobster, and copper ore. But the headline news was that China also imposed temporary anti-dumping duties on Australian wine. This meant wine came with tariffs that went up to 212%. This temporary measure then became official in March 2021 when China formally applied tariffs of up to 218% on Australian wine.
2: 218% increase in tariffs on Australian wine. This had a huge impact on the Australian wine industry. When we talk mainland China's appetite for Australian wine, we are talking about a market that spent 575 million US dollars on Aussie wine in the year 2020 alone. And that's since been reduced to just 5 million US as of June this year. And there's much deeper effects that aren't quite making the headlines. And we'll get into that as well in just a few minutes. But Jasmine, let's talk about how this turned around.
3: So in May 2022, the Labour Party won a majority government for the first time since 2007, and Anthony Albanese became Prime Minister. And this is when we begin to see high-level meetings between China and Australia resume. First, there's the new Australian Foreign Minister, Penny Wong. She met her Chinese counterpart, Wang Yi, in July. Then, Albanese met Chinese President Xi Jinping in November at the G20 summit in Bali. In February of this year, Australia's Trade Minister Don Farrell held a virtual meeting with his Chinese counterpart Wang Wentao. The two later met in person in Beijing in May. Six days after that meeting, China agreed to resume imports of Australian timber. Four weeks later in March, China allowed all domestic companies to import Australian coal. And just last month, in August, China lifted its tariffs on Australian barley. But what remains is wine.
2: What we tend to forget about Beijing's massive tariffs on Australian-made wine is how much Chinese investment there is in the Australian wine industry. Jasmine, everyone in Hong Kong knows who Li ka is.
3: Yeah, they call him Superman. Earlier this year, his company C.K. Hutchison Holdings bought the second largest vineyard in Australia's Margaret River. Add that to the 29 vineyards he already owns in Western Australia, the Barossa Valley in South Australia, as well as New South Wales and Victoria. And he's now one of the biggest vineyard owners, not only in Australia, but in the world.
2: You know, there was a social media campaign in Australia back in 2021 to boycott Chinese-owned vineyards in Australia. And it turns out there's more than 40 of them across the country. But I think there's a really interesting story happening in China with Australian wine. Because just a month or two ago, one of the most prestigious and oldest Australian wine brands, Penfolds, announced it was releasing its first vintage wine made in mainland China.
3: Isn't there a thing about how the Penfolds name translates into Mandarin?
2: That's right. Penfolds translates basically to the equivalent of Run to Prosperity, which makes it really popular for people ordering wine in mainland China. Now, for this special announcement from Penfolds, you had to get into mainland China to attend the press conference. And Candy Wong traveled there and spoke with Tom King, the managing director of Treasury Wines, which is the parent company of Penfolds.
5: So I think it's important just to understand a bit of the journey of what's got us to where we are today, mm-hmm. releasing our first yeah. collection wine from China. Um, and you go back, you know, we've our winemakers have been coming to China for decades. Um, and, you know, as they've come and visited different parts of the country, have always had a bit of an appreciation for wines that are made in China. You know, it's a, it's a different environment to where we've historically made our wines in South Australia yeah Um, over the sort of last few years we've taken a much keener interest um, sort of aligned to where we've been progressing with the Penfolds portfolio Mm. so you know expanding out of our home of Australia to California to Bordeaux Mm. we were all 100% aligned that the next country of origin was going to be China Mm. Um, so we made that decision that we were going to get serious so about sorry this. just
1: one interruption. But it all triggered because of a geopolitics, right? I mean no. When you, no?
5: No, no, no. Okay. Um, yeah, just, like genuinely this was, you know, part of a plan that we wrote five years ago. Um, mm. in terms of a strategy for before the tariff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, obviously in the last few years the pace of our development has has accelerated. Right. Which has been great um but we've had a, a number of very long-term customer relationships partnerships on the ground in china of, as we've been selling our wines over a number of years mm. and when we started talking to these partners around our desire to make wine in china they're obviously very connected influential people mm. within the trade more broadly and they made some introductions mm. for us both into to local government here in Shangri-La but also up in Ningxia and we articulated you know, the history of Penfold, the vision of where we wanted to go and, and our desire to play a meaningful role in the development of the industry as much as anything, and it coincided with a point in time where central government was, you know, actively championing development of the wine industry, and that's been, been very evident. There's been a huge amount of investment and focus, particularly in Ningxia, over recent years. They also introduced us to local partners in the industry, so, right. you know, our business in China has historically been a you know, it's been a commercial business. We sell wine here. Uh, We import wine and sell wine. Um, So a whole new group of stakeholders, a whole new set of communities, actually, Mm. uh, Mm -hmm. as a a producer and maker of wines, thinking about our operations here in China, Mm. similar to what we do in Australia or the US or France, which is, you know, really getting serious about being a part of the community and the industry and doing things for the good of the, of the, of the local category.
1: So you have a stupid question, sorry. So mm. you need to go through all the big kind of middlemen for you to reach to the small villages to cooperate uh, here?
5: Well, look, it's our introduction to, to the villages, to the local facilities. have come off the back of relationships that we've developed over many years. Um, and so introductions you know it's a very relationship driven industry Uh, drinks wine is globally and that's no different here in china uh we've been fortunate that we've had these really strong relationships with some you know influential people in the trade who were happy to you know support us and vouch for us almost as good people to do business with and that's what we we pride ourselves on at at twe more broadly it's one of our fundamentals we want to be a great place to work and we want to be good to to do business with and we you know, we're very appreciative of how we've been then welcomed, whether it's down here in Shangri-La or up in Ningxia. Mm. Um, at the government level or at the producer's level, people are, have embraced us very strongly and are yeah. uh, delighted that when our winemakers come, they want to learn about how we make wines in Australia and other parts of the world. Um, oh, okay. So it's this exchange of ideas and yeah. exchange of philosophies um, that has been something really quite special. And Sue, so if you talk, I don't know if you've got the chance today, but any of the team who are involved in the wine making yeah. here in China they they genuinely believe they've been part of something special and that's people on our side but also on our, on our partner's side
1: what's the process right now like you get the grapes in China and then you make the wines in Australia no no, make, no no, no. everything is made here, here. Right? Yeah.
5: yeah yeah i mean Absolutely. that's also
1: the part where you guys can basically bypass that import tariff thing also because if you export it from Australia, then you need to have that import tariff. It's like really high right now. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Look, at, at the moment, obviously, every business, and we're no different, faces certain external parameters or restrictions on their business at, at various points in time. The tariffs have been in place for two and a half years now. When the tariffs came in, we made the call that actually this doesn't change our approach to what we want to achieve in China, which is mm. a long-term successful business a strong brand that is, you know, loved by consumers and collectors across the country. Mm. Um, our business here now looks very different to what it did three years ago, okay. uh, because we now have much, much less Australian wine to sell.
2: Candy Wong, we just heard you speaking with the managing director of Treasury Wines about their new operation in Shangri La in Yunnan Province. You've been covering this whole Australia-China trade war diplomatic freeze and possible thawing uh, as of late. Can you tell us from the people you're speaking to, the sources you've got, are we going to see both countries, Australia and China, going back to their pre-2020 type relationship? Uh, What kind of hurdles remain?
1: Um, It's going to be better than the time of the Morrison administration, but it's uh, still kind of a little bit far away from the pre-2018 level kind of bilateral relationship. Uh, Before Albanese goes to China, that we heard from sources that he's going there probably like by end of October to early November. But before um, he goes to China, um, there are like a lot of communications between um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in China and um, the Foreign Minister Penny Wong in Australia that both sides have um, like a chunk of concerns right now. So uh, for Australia, it's more like the trade sanctions um, because we still have the wine tariff right now after the barley tariff is lifted. And also the release of Chen Lei is the Australian journalist. Also some other human rights issues are in Hong Kong, Tibet, or maybe Xinjiang. These are the concerns like on the Australian side. And then for China, there are concerns like the Chinese investments um, in Australia. Like a series of national security issues, including Ocas and the defense strategy, or maybe the joint um, operation in South China Sea lately, that China is still thinking that could be the possible barriers between the two countries right now. So, before Albanese actually um, set off um, to China, both sides are still having quite a lot of issues that they have to sort out, or maybe they have to find a common ground around that.
2: Well, that's interesting you say common ground because I can't see in any way Beijing changing its policies towards Tibet, Hong Kong, or Xinjiang. And I can't see Australia changing its policies towards having thousands of American troops and new military bases built in its north. So it, it seems like there's a, still a long way to go. But, but from what you've seen in your reporting, is it the change of language, this thing that was, this accusation that was levelled at the Morrison government of megaphone diplomacy, where they would just say something on, on Twitter or at press conferences in Australia? What do you think is the key here, the, the change the the course of the relationship.
1: I mean during the Morrison administration, it's all about the language of shaping things. But now it doesn't quite feel like um there's a lot of discussions around that. Um, but it's more like um how both sides can basically just um try to kind of work with each other. Uh, and then without talking too much about this kind of differences, um, because at some point, I mean these differences um will be something that cannot really kind of um, find a consensus. So um, it's more like how um, the Australian government can really kind of move on and then focus on the kind of key issues and then just to open up that kind of um, thawing ties to what we call um, with China um, without, um, you know, highlighting something that um, may not be some sort of issues that Beijing would like to discuss too much.
2: You know, Candy, it was a little while ago on this podcast that you spoke to us about your visit to Perth in Western Australia and a Chinese-owned lithium processing facility. You know, part of this narrative is, is the rush to secure the, the rare earths, the kinds, of, uh, the kinds of minerals that make batteries for electronic vehicles, this race between, you know, the West versus China. When you picked up on this Chinese company in Perth, what was the key thing that you found out in that visit about this company, Tianxi, operating in Australia in lithium processing?
1: Uh, China needs Australia like, um, for getting the raw material. But some tenancy, Australia also needs China. So it's kind of like an interdependent um, relationship between the two countries. It's because um, Australia just doesn't have that kind of technology processing. Um you know, infrastructure and operation in Australia. So no matter what, they just have to send the raw material to China. And then they have to go through that complicated processing progress of doing the end product. Uh, And right now, basically, China is so huge with the comprehensive infrastructure, with the the supporting um, manpower and everything that can support that kind of raw material that they got from Australia. So um, there is no one effective uh, replacement to China right now. And they still need to send the stuff to China and then just to go through the long processing procedure.
2: Well, Candy, it's been fascinating reading your reporting and picking up on the the more nuanced aspects of the China-Australia relationship. We, of course, read your stuff on SEMP.com, and I look forward to reading your analysis in the months to come as we possibly get the Australian Prime Minister to Beijing to meet Xi Jinping and turn this corner in the Australia-China relationship. Thank you very much. Thank you. So let's look deeper into the media narrative of where we find the relationship between China and Australia right now. This is an edited version of an interview we did with Professor Waning Sun just a couple of days ago. She's a professor of media and currently at the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Sydney, otherwise known as UTS. She's also author of numerous analysis and opinion pieces, including on scmp.com. Professor Sun, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Now, Professor, we're about to see the resumption of the Australia-China high-level dialogue, this this meeting between Australian and Chinese diplomats, politicians and business figures. In July last year, you wrote about how Australian media misconstrued the diplomatic language from China after such events. This was in context of the Wong Yi-Penny Wong meeting at the G20. And you talked about how it got construed into a conflict narrative, Can you tell us what you've observed about how the Australian media translates its own version of phrases aimed originally Chinese domestic audiences into this thing called the aggrieved China narrative?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's probably a very good time to ask that question, given that there is going to be a high level talk, which... On the surface, it's a good story, but who knows well, <laughs> what will happen to to turn that into a bad story, as is the case in the past. The issue that you were referring to was in response to a media statement that was issued by the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, aiming at improving the relationship between China and Australia. And the statement put forward four points of discussion, basically as a way of saying that both sides should work towards a common goal and there are four four points vaguely worded four points but nevertheless when that was translated into english by a journalist they turn into four demands but once that translation is done it seems to take on a life of its own and also seems to become the narrative angle at which journalists approach this issue to such extent that when journalists were actually asking the prime minister Albanese a newly elected prime minister Albanese and saying Prime Minister, do you think the Australian government should meet the Chinese government's demand? He had no other option but to say, oh, we do not respond to any government's demand. (laughs) And not knowing that the demand, the translation of the word itself is problematic in the first place. So as I observed in the past, and I think the journalists played him like a violin. But that was just uh, emblematic of a tendency, if you like, among our journalists to engage in quite problematic translations, if you like. Sometimes it's a matter of what we call mistranslation or misreading of the original language. It's possibly through ignorance, lack of China literacy, but sometimes you wonder whether it is because the original language, if it's translated very faithfully, can actually add color and a sensationalism to the story. I think this is an issue that's going to keep coming up because journalists, when they come across a statement made by the Chinese leaders or the official document, there is always the issue of cross-cultural translation. It sometimes the temptation to use colorful languages would be just too tempting. And especially if they help to sort of uh, push already existing kind of line or theme of China being very aggressive and assertive and demanding. So unfortunately, that's the case. We don't know whether that's not going to happen at all in the future.
3: Professor Sun, you've picked up on something that's been happening over the past six or seven years that you describe as a buildup of securitization discourse. Can you give us a sense of how the China threat narrative has escalated in Australian media coverage?
0: What I can say is that if you look at uh, what happened in the last six or seven years, you do see a gradual, but uh, sort of slowly but surely, the, the build-up of the what we call the securitization process in our media. You know, if you look at international relations scholars, they've written a lot about the fact that there is a difference between national threat and the perception of national threat. So in order for that perception of national threat to be turned into this national threat, there's a discursive process there that needs to happen. And so international relations people would actually look at the securitizing process. And they are looking at the, some of the people who are what they call the securitizing actors. And these actors engage what they call the securitizing moves, which itself entail making a speech of a statement, initial statement of some kind. So starting from six or seven years ago, you have our then Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, making a speech about China is a real threat to us. And of course, for that speech to be perpetuated, to be reinforced, to be substantiated and to be continuously rehearsed in order for that to take on the appearance of something that is just a common sense and something that's sort of non-problematic and is something that you shouldn't actually even question, then you need to have the continuous process of a number of actors working together, which in this case include, on one hand, the security establishment, which includes, for instance, ASIO, the defence, the military. And on the other hand, you've got our media, and uh, certain personalities in media who are highly influential and highly ambitious. And so it's a case of uh, a media becoming actively involved in Amplifying in perpetuating this kind of statement, initial statement that's made by the security establishment as well as the politicians.
2: I think it's interesting that you sort of point towards the same language we see in Australian media, political circles. We see in the U.S. You know, there's there's only two flavors: you're either tough on China or you're weak on China. There's no nuance any kind of discussion, there's no discussion of the economic relationship, et cetera. Tell us about this thing. You talk about the institutional agenda of reporting on China, because, you know, it's been interesting to try and see the disconnect in Australia during these last couple of years of China's unofficial trade war, where there's been certain things that don't get talked about, like the huge amounts of iron ore that get sent from Australia to supply not just China's economy, it's helping China build its navy but that doesn't get discussed, you know, and there are a variety of other things. So can you just sort of unpack a bit more about the institutionalised agenda? When it comes to
0: our media's institutional agenda, I'm very, very careful not to suggest that there is a conspiracy agenda. I'm very careful not to suggested that you know there is across the board a sort of a plan, a concerted effort to portray China in a certain way. I would actually see that as the interaction, if you like, or intersection or interaction of a number of forces all coming into play. For instance, um, one factor could be the dire situation facing our media sector, financial struggling of, of our media sector, particularly confronted by the challenges they brought on by the internet and the digital and the social media. So that's one reason why our media are just more desperate than before to retain readers, to grow their subscriptions and not to go out of business or not to lay off staff. But this is the real issue. And on top of that, we have the rise of political populism across the globe right so then that comes down to the increasing polemic and polarized views you know racism as well as anti-racism and all sorts of identity politics and i think our media made just in recognition of the fact that there's need for more polarized and extreme views in order to, to sell better headlines, that they, there's a temptation to cater to more extreme views. So that, that is another uh, reason, if you like. And so when, when we actually bring it, all this together, then you, you have this kind of perfect storm, if you like. And the fact that Australia is so dependent on China has made it, Australia even more anxious. Than, for instance, New Zealand or some other places which are less dependent on China for economic survival. So that all built into this kind of situation whereby our media might, particularly commercial media, may just have come to realisation that, hey, doing a bad story about China is actually good business strategy maybe, because a bad China sells copies. Marketing psychology has already proven that if you sell emotions such as anxiety and fear, you tend to sell your product, right? So I think it is unfortunately in the economic interest of our media, particularly the commercial media, to peddle fear. And to maintain this level of anxiety, particularly about the unknown. And a lot of it, to a lot of people, China is unknown.
3: Professor Sun, you published a study with your team that surveyed first-generation Chinese Australians and how they see themselves perceived by the English-speaking Australian media. What did you find out about how they are portrayed?
0: I have found out that there's a range of uh, perceptions about this community that's kind of perpetuated by our media. And this could range from the perception that the, the Chinese communities, some of them are likely to be spies and agents working on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. So there's this kind of a narrative. The other narrative is that even if they're not spies themselves, some of them may be engaged in some kind of nefarious activities in connection with the Chinese state agencies. Or uh, some of the people who may not be either spies or agents, but they are very easy to be brainwashed. They're nationalists, pro-China nationalists, who are just easily brainwashed by Chinese propaganda or to flip the coin, they could also be portrayed as individuals who are vulnerable and in need of protection from the persecution of the Chinese Communist Party. So there's a whole range, uh, a whole spectrum, if you like. What is very, very seldom or if ever represented about this community is the fact that most of them are quite capable of making up their own mind about the accuracy of news reporting, either from the Australian side or from the Chinese side. Uh, Most of them are working very hard to negotiate a very complex set of questions about their identities and who they are. Oh sure, they say, you know, maybe a handful of people are just naive enough to be, you know, sold a propaganda line by the state Chinese media. And most of them actually told me that (laughs) they place less trust and credibility in the Chinese media than in Australian media, despite the fact that they're actually not happy with the Australian media. So you can tell that you know most of them are pretty capable of entertaining quite complex thoughts and uh, have a lot of agency, if you like, which is not actually represented at all in our media's representation.
2: Professor, that word agency, I was really thinking about that when you are talking about the way that Chinese Australians are portrayed you reported for Crikey.com last year. Quite the opposite, the political power of voters of Chinese heritage. They played a key role in voting in the Albanese government, voting out Morrison government, which you know had a defence minister who stood up on you know, one year ago on Anzac Day and basically asked Australia to declare war on China. He, he painted the 2020s as the 1930s and tried to paint China as imminent threat, and this nation must prepare for war. That really rubbed people up the wrong way, but it really sort of got a sector of the electorate, you know, China's Australians who would tend to vote more in pro-business policies... That was the accepted political kind of knowledge at the time, they really mm. threw that government out. Mm. That was quite the interesting electoral effect. Yes,
0: you are right. Traditionally, the accepted view is that the Chinese migrant community tend to vote uh, more conservatively because, rightly or wrongly, they believe that the coalitions or the conservative uh, liberal parties are better economic managers and most people want to prosper. But this time after quite a few years of being under the hammer and particularly with morrison government and his uh, political colleagues uh, just uh, using china policy as some kind of political football in order to score domestic political points to the point that, that the rising level of anti-chinese racism did particularly during the covid time and there's a lot of vilification of the chinese community to such extent that some of the liberal Previously, Liberal-supporting voters have decided to switch vote and vote for the first time for Labour Party. And so much so that uh, quite a few electoral seats where you have a considerable percentage of Chinese population have changed from a liberal to Labour. But interestingly, now that Labour has got in, and it seems to me that despite the fact that Labour has been a lot more strategic and calm in its China rhetoric and never tried to engage in what's called sort of megaphone diplomacy. Its foreign policy towards China, nevertheless, is no less hawkish, so to speak. And particularly if you look at the fact that it's actually stuck to the Orca deal. in fact, I vigorously defended it.
3: Professor Soon, let me go back to the Australian media. You earlier talked about securitization discourse and also how it's in their economic interest to report about a bad China. But do you see a way back to normalcy for the Australian media narrative of China? Do you think there is a chance to change the conversation and the framing of the China-Australian relationship?
0: I think the Australian media now have this kind of odd situation whereby I see that as a coexistence between the so-called the watchdog model of journalism versus the what I call the guard dog uh, version of journalism. By the watchdog, I mean media played a role as the conscience, the force state to speak truth to power and interrogating the government in power. It's still doing that pretty well within in terms of domestic issues and policies. However, when it's the same journalist sometimes even who otherwise do quite vigorous investigations in domestic issues, when they flip to the international coverage, particularly on China, the blinker seems to be back on. (laughs) So you just wonder, uh, what's going on? Isn't the same journalist? You know, how come the quality is just so different? And the difference is that when it comes to the reporting of national security issues on, on China, they kind of inadvertently kind of slip back to that role as that kind of uh, collaborators, if you like, with our security establishment, working quite actively, receiving anonymous tips from the government and, you know, functioning as their voices in their mouthpiece rather than actually going out and independently finding ways of investigating why some of the, our political elites are saying what they're saying or doing what they're doing
2: maybe the new generations will come up with new conclusions. Professor Waning Sun, really, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much.
0: It's really nice talking to you too. Thanks very much for this.
3: That's all for this somewhat special episode of Inside China, coming as it does on the morning of the heaviest rainfall in Hong Kong since records began in the late 1800s. The city is flooded, there's huge disruption, but of course, the news cycle keeps rolling on. You'll get the latest news updates on scmp.com.
2: And when Anthony Albanese finally does land in Beijing and walks in the footsteps of Gough Whitlam some 50 years earlier, you'll be getting all the analysis from our team in Beijing as well as here in Hong Kong as well. Jasmine, thanks for dialling in from the other side of the Hong Kong harbour. It's my pleasure. My name is Jared Watt. Thanks for listening.